maybe we'll start with Marcel's question. So Marcel asks, how do you keep mindful during intellectual activities? For example, when I read an intellectually demanding text and stay aware of the fact that I'm reading or of my breathing, I can't remember what I just read. It seems that since awareness is not conceptual or verbal, it gets into the way. How do you personally experience mindfulness while writing a book? <coughs> uh, please excuse me for the cough. <clears throat> it's interesting that I was just mindful of the fact that I turned my face away as though you were actually in front of me, so I didn't cough on you. Um, but anyway, um, so Marcel, one of the things that you have said here is that it seems that since awareness is not conceptual or verbal, it gets into the way. Um, like, these are, it, it is, it's not truly non-conceptual, it is, but it is, a different kind of conceptual that is definitely nonverbal, and that those are basically the reasons that it doesn't get in the way. So you say that uh, when you stay aware of the fact that you're reading or of my breathing, I can't remember what I just read, that suggests to me that um, you're trying to be aware of the fact that you're reading or of your breathing using the faculty of attention rather than awareness. Um, and that uh, that's an easy thing to do. Um, uh, well, if you, you don't clearly understand the difference between the two and you haven't developed uh, uh, sufficiently increased power of, of consciousness to do both at once. Um, there is a, a tendency for, uh, uh, yeah, to to try to do to to try to use alternating attention in place of awareness. Now, this is something that uh, is very common in uh, certainly in the first three stages. And I just explicitly point out there uh, that uh, uh, this is okay. It doesn't matter because when attention, uh, when attention tries to um, determine whether or not you are aware, it's also uh, uh, providing a uh, pr providing the mechanism that's responsible for awareness with the information that you want more awareness. You want to be aware of the kind of things that, that you're looking for with attention. But uh, the first, the four-stage four transition described in stage one <clears throat> is a really good opportunity every time you sit to, to play with and understand a little more deeply the differences between attention and awareness. And in the practice of uh, the stage two and stage three, uh, you're going to be able to uh, 
go much more deeply into your understanding of that. By the time you get to stage four, you're ready to begin invoking uh, a certain degree of metacognitive quality into your uh, into your introspective awareness. When the power of consciousness is sufficiently developed, you can easily and very naturally be aware of the fact that you're reading, or you ask about me's writing. I can be aware of the fact that I'm writing. I can be aware of a whole number of other things, both internally and externally. Um, I can be I can be aware of uh, the processes that are uh, directing the my written expression in a particular way. Uh, and that is valuable because it will allow me to recognize that I am uh, uh, not, I, I either am or am not succeeding in uh, expressing myself in a way that is con continuous with the flow of thought that I'm working on. So um, the sense I get from your question is that. Uh, that well, there's one or both of two things is that you may not yet be fully clear on the well, I guess it's three things. First, you may not yet be fully clear on the distinction between uh, attention and awareness experientially. You may have a good understanding of it intellectually, but not uh, experientially, and or. Um, you're trying to accomplish uh, awareness uh, by, uh, by using attention. And this, of course, will, uh, in the case of an intellectually demanding activity, like reading a text, uh, this will, of course, interfere with that quite significantly. <clears throat> and uh, the third possibility is that you haven't yet developed sufficient uh, uh, power of consciousness to be able to be highly aware and read at, at uh, read a textbook at the same time now this last is something that really uh, stage five should get you, you know, this practices in stage five uh, should get you on the path of, of a continuously uh, increasing power of consciousness and particularly power of introspective awareness, metacognitive introspective awareness, uh, even to the point that later on extrospective awareness falls away in order to increase the power available for introspective awareness. And in particular, since it's irrelevant to the practices that you're doing as an adept uh, or in stage seven. So from seven to 10, um, the, much of your mental power is going into metacognitive introspective awareness. And there is more than enough left uh, to uh, to devote to reading the actual and intellectual act activity like writing or reading. 
So unfortunately, you're not here for me to ask any probing questions and try to clarify that. But just reading your question that is, uh, and not really knowing where you are in your practice, these, were the, these are the suggestions that I make, is that you clarify for yourself experientially through playing with attention and awareness in a whole variety of different situations. Uh, Four-step transition during the practice itself uh, and even during your daily life off the cushion uh, in situations that perhaps aren't as intellectually demanding as reading. Um, secondly, that uh, and related to that is that in the particular activities you're describing, make sure that attention isn't trying to fulfill both functions at once. And uh, third, uh, depending on where you are in the, in the stages, uh, either look forward to increasing the, uh, your mental power considerably from stage five onward, or if you're already in those advanced stages, uh, then uh, you should have uh, you should have the ability to work in your practice on further enhancing the, the power of your conscious awareness uh, and, and uh, attention simultaneously. So that's about as much as I can say to, to Marcel without him actually being here. And uh, anyone else who has any comment or question arising out of that explanation or any other, please just go ahead and, uh, and uh, let me know, okay? So, look at Stephen Cartledge's question. Uh, quick scan, I'm not seeing Stephen Cartledge, okay. Um, then, <clears throat> One may spend a very long time working in stage four using the sensation of the breath of the nose as the meditation object. As one moves on to further stages, is it important to use the sensations of the breath at the abdomen as the meditation object? How common is it to mistake a feeling of pleasantness with a flow, with the flow PT? Thank you. Okay, so there's two questions here. As one moves on to further stages, is it important to use the sensation of the breath of the abdomen as the meditation object? Um, no, not at all. Um, when doing stage five and stage six body scanning, it's an easy way to get into looking at breath sensations, discovering breath sensations in other parts of the body by taking the abdomen, the chest, the shoulders, uh, perhaps sometimes even the upper arms, where there is some physical movement associated with, uh, uh, with the breath uh, to help get you oriented towards searching for breath-related breath sensations in other parts of the body. But other than that, um, uh, and that's not even necessary, that's just, you know, as a suggested way of getting into it, you go, could go straight from the breath of the nose to the hand. Um, so um, there's really no necessity at all at, at any point to uh, 
use the sensation of the breath at the abdomen. Although by the time that you uh, reach the depth stages, you can uh, you can uh, use sensations anywhere of any kind as a meditation object, should you choose to. Uh, so as for your second question, how common is it to mistake a feeling of pleasantness with the flow piti? Um, I haven't encountered that very often for the simple reason that most people recognize that uh, the uh, pleasantness associated with PT usually doesn't um, arise in a recognizable way until after there have already been the manifestations of the earlier grades of PT. And um, when it does when it does rise, it is pretty much recognizable as a result of a, having entered into a particular mental state that is um, um, different than simply like right now. I feel the pleasantness of the couch cushion that I'm leaning against. Uh, uh, in my skin, the room is a little bit cool. There is warmth there, there's softness there, it's a pleasant sensation. But uh, in, in its pleasantness, it's quite different than, uh, than the pleasantness that's associated with flow or with the mature state of PT. Um, once again, I have this feeling like I would strongly like to be able to to uh, ask uh, ask Stephen uh, a little bit further, a little bit more about what he's trying to get at. Like one of the things that arises in my mind is, why is he asking this question? Why is Stephen uh, asking at all about the breath of the abdomen? Does it indeed have to do with the instructions in uh, in experiencing the body with the breath, or is it to do with something else? And likewise with this question of a, uh, a feeling of, of pleasantness that's not associated with PT or flow, uh, yeah, I, I'm afraid I really don't understand where the question is coming from. So the most I can do is answer it at a very superficial level and so I will move on from that with the sense that I probably haven't really touched into what's being, uh, what's being asked. I think it's worthwhile, the fact that I did that for all of you, because <clears throat> some of you may end up being in the position of teachers. And one of the impo most important thing when answering questions about meditation uh, as a teacher or as a meditation group leader or anything like that, is when somebody asks you a question, the first thing that has to come to your mind is, okay, I know what it sounds like they're asking, but let me find out what they really want to know and what they really need to know. So I, uh, and so I will often respond to a question with more questions for that reason. So I'll, I'll leave you with that. Um, oh, another application of that to those of you that are here is that 
when you find yourself asking a teacher a question, um, especially if there's a lot of other people with their hands up asking questions as well, try as much as possible to convey what it is that you really want to know, which is kind of why you're asking the question in the first place. So if you can get in touch with that, you know, it'll make it much easier for the person you're asking to answer your question. Okay? Adrian. Hello, I have a question about awareness of feelings, emotions. I think it is very common to find that people have conditioning that doesn't allow them to experience feelings properly. I'd certainly agree with that. I think attachments are involved in that. In my opinion, language is an obvious expression of those attachments, and it is key in recognizing this, and it manifests in ways of speaking to others that do not take into account other egos. Yes. Uh, I think attachments are involved, and I would interpret that to mean um, ego attachments with their, their roots in past conditioning, past events, and the Yeah, and you say, that that doesn't allow them to experience feelings properly. Well, that that is, uh, that is quite true. If you have ego attachments to self-view that are due to past conditioning, um, um, then this can can definitely you know if uh, you you don't believe that you should have certain kinds of feelings or if you don't want to have certain kinds of feelings because of uh, the kinds of situations or the circumstances that have triggered those kinds of feelings in the past you might very well hide them from yourself and uh, yes yeah, so uh, that's the kind of attachments that are involved. Uh, I don't want to acknowledge that indeed I'm feeling these feelings, or I have other associations with these feelings, so I don't want to become consciously aware that I'm having these feelings because it will trigger uh, uh, reactions and responses that have to do with some previous experience. In my opinion, language is an obvious expression of those attachments. And it is key in recognizing this, and it manifests in ways of speaking to others that do not take into account other egos. Well, I certainly can't disagree with that. Um, in the vast majority of cases, when we are speaking out of our own reactivity, uh, we are only concerned with our own ego, one way or another, and we have. Uh, little, if any, awareness of how uh, the choice of words and intonation and things like that that serve our ego attachments might affect 
the and, and in a negative way the uh, ego attachments of others. And the flip side of that is that we will often express things due to ego attachments that are attempts to create some kind of a positive impression in the minds of others um, and be blind to many of the possible effects of that. Uh, including the fact that using speech in such a way that satisfies your ego needs may have the fact may have the effect of making another person feel that you are in some way uh, speaking down to them or uh, 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 trying to assert some superiority and so on and so forth. Um, so that's, uh, I'm trying to interpret, it, uh, interpret this question, and that's what I come up with. It also makes it impossible to have a true relationship. Well, that's true. If, if when, uh, it makes it like an ongoing uh, social media conversation where everybody's creating a false persona that they present to everyone else. That's just an exaggerated form of what most people do in some of their relationships and what many people what well what what many people do in some of their relationships and what some people do in many of their relationships they don't have real relationships they're uh, they are projecting well we all tend to uh, to try to project things into other people's minds to do with how they're their, what form their perception of us takes, but uh, uh, some more more so than than others, and this is really common. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, just the idea pops into my head of how uh, the the very very familiar but ludicrous situation where, uh, and when I mean many of you are are older, but. I think back to when you were younger and uh, you wanted to make a new friend, whether it was a, a, a friend of the opposite sex that you were attracted to or whether it was just somebody that you wanted to have a friendship with, that you would present a false version of yourself to that person, which then complicated the relationship because if you succeeded in establishing a relationship, then the two of you had to eventually go through the process of revealing more and more of your true selves to each other uh, in order for the relationship to continue. But um, yeah, that, that, can, uh, that can be so extreme that it makes it impossible to have true relationships. Um, there are people that I can think of offhand that um, I doubt that they really have a, uh, an honest and open relationship with anybody because of the need that they have to defend uh, their self-image in their own mind by having a positive self-image reflected back to them by other people. So Adrian would like to know if it is possible to have awareness of feelings in meditation when that conditioning is in the unconscious. And uh, yes, by all means, I had hoped that that would come very clear 
um, somewhat in the third interlude on the magic of mindfulness, but even more so when we're talking about uh, a, emotions and images and thoughts and things like that that arise in meditation in stage four. And meditation itself will allow feelings to arise into awareness and become consciousness that would uh, normally be repressed in some way. Um, and even when they do, they're still often masking some different but deeper emotion so that uh, there may be an arising of anger, but behind the anger is a fear, and perhaps behind the fear is even something else. So it, it is most definitely possible, and this is one of the things that uh, is very important that, uh, that uh, meditation makes possible. The practices we do are designed to achieve a unification of mind, a gathering together of the mind, um, uh, a, uh, a training of the mind so that it can uh, function in a much more powerful way. And this means that those parts of the mind that um, are in one way or another in reaction to other parts of the mind uh, that normally remain quite sequestered except under certain circumstances have the opportunity to make their way into consciousness or at least to give signals that may be through sensations in the body or images or ideas or things like that uh, that become conscious. See, so the whole question here, a whole statement is, I would like to know if it is possible to have awareness of feelings in meditation when that conditioning is in the unconscious, or if it is something someone with conditioning around feelings is not going to be able to do. Now, this latter part is just pointing to the fact that sometimes the conditioning can be so strong that... Um, um, it, it takes quite a while for this to happen. Um, sometimes the mind has to be better prepared to allow it to happen, which is why we have the situation that whereas a lot of purification takes place for most people at stage four, that uh, it also, they can find themselves undergoing purifications at later stages, but most especially when they get to stage seven, where now you have exclusive attention and your introspective awareness is quite powerful, then uh, this creates the opportunity for things that might not have ever stood a chance of coming to the surface in stage four to make themselves known in one way or another. And uh, the role of unification of mind and the gathering together of the mind that's known as samadhi uh, is doing is it's creating a pressure on these uh, sub-minds that are trying to keep themselves uh, sequestered, isolated from the rest of the mind system as a whole. It creates a pressure on them that uh, will uh, enhance the likelihood of their coming to the surface. And 
here's a point at which we can throw in the caveat that particularly powerful and painful conditioning or conditioning that involves uh, very, very strong conflicts in um, belief systems or belief system and behavior, uh, powerful things like guilt and shame, things like that. There are some of those, sometimes those things can be so strong that uh, these things just simply can't come to consciousness in a way that allows their integration. And there's two possibilities. One is that they become submerged, in which case they are likely to come up at some later point in the process, often with the, uh, uh, with the onset of insight as it begins to approach sufficient maturity for insight into no self to develop, uh, in which case it can be very painful and traumatic and uh, sometimes uh, lead to uh, 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 more pathological mental states. The other possibility is that, that, uh, that when they do arise, that uh, they are they arise in an overwhelming manner and that a person needs to go and seek some sort of professional assistance because um, sitting in meditation by yourself is more than uh, is is more than you can handle you're you're facing demons that you're not yet strong enough to deal with and you need the help of someone else to do that so It's interesting, I have the same experience over and over again, question after question here. Am I really getting at what the person is asking or not? So, good practice for me here. Look into these questions, try to understand, try to think, do I know what they're asking and why? Okay. <clears throat> And uh, once again, uh, feel free to offer your opinions or your thoughts or anything like that. You think you can see that I'm missing the point of what they're asking? Uh, please say so, because I it's it's a very real possibility. Okay, and Zachary Daniel, there's Zachary here. No. <laughs> Here's not okay. Okay, one thing that I'm noticing in my practice is that dullness brought on by external tiredness, uh, for example, didn't sleep well last night, is often a relatively unconquerable as adversary. I can progress through the stages in that state, but more than often, often I just end up chasing dreamlike thoughts and forgetting. Yes, please, please don't do that. Uh, if you find that uh, you can't succeed in applying an antidote that is sufficient to bring you into a state of alertness that lasts several minutes, then uh, far better that you get some rest, that you get some sleep, uh, than, than that you continue in something that's uh, at... Uh, at best going to be unproductive 
and at worst may be producing an undesirable conditioning in terms of how you respond to dullness uh, in meditation. Say, I've tried sitting through these feelings, but I also know that if I just wait for a while and come back to it in an hour or tomorrow morning, that I can approach my meditation with clarity and energy. And so that is exactly what you should do. My question is a three-parter. What should I do when I find that no dullness remedy is working and I'm sinking into dullness? Quit. Go have a nap. Whatever. You said sometimes that uh, if you just uh, um, wait a while and come back, um, perhaps that gives you enough time to regenerate the necessary neurotransmitters in your mind and, and in your brain so that you can be successful. So. What you should do is, yes, quit and wait until it's possible to um, apply a remedy that will work. What is your opinion on doing something like having a coffee or a tea before a sit so the caffeine can help you remain alert? Well, I would advise against that. Uh, uh, it's far better that you, uh, on the one hand, make, make sure that uh, you're not uh, trying to meditate when you're uh, that exhausted. Um, establishing a practice doesn't just involve sitting down every day with the intention to meditate. It involves uh, exercising a certain amount of discretion. What's the best time of day for me to meditate? What changes do I need to make in my lifestyle? If I decide that I'm going to get up at 4 a.m., and meditate so that I have time to do all of the other things that I need to do and I don't change my habit of going to bed at midnight and not being asleep before 1230 well then that's kind of defeating the whole purpose that's not establishing a consistent practice that is going to be effective or valuable you may need to modify your lifestyle so that you get adequate sleep and adequate rest and that is far more valuable than something like coffee or tea. You're relying on the effect of caffeine. Um, the more you rely on the effect of caffeine, the more caffeine it takes to produce that effect. And uh, it's not really the way to approach it. If, if your dullness is such that you can bring yourself out of it for a sufficient period of time, that you're actually succeeding in training the mind not to go into dullness, then don't deprive yourself of that opportunity by using coffee or tea as a stimulant so that you don't get to work on dullness. Uh, for that matter, what is your take on chemical assistance in general? In general, use it only when it is the best solution to the problem. If you are experiencing anxiety, depression, things like that, to such a degree it impairs your ability to function, see an MD and get a prescription for chemical assistance. Um, if it is something that is manageable without chemical assistance, don't try to manage it with chemical assistance. So, you. Yeah. <laughs> Zachary, you are welcome. Um,
Stephen Torrance. Present? Appears not. Okay. All right. Stephen says, Howdy, Chula Dasa. Howdy back, Stephen. Do you have any remarks on the Bardo Todal from a TMI perspective? For instance, do you see it as offering valuable navigational guidance to the mind system during the physical dying process? Or is it to be taken purely metaphorically, disregarded entirely? Etc. Um, I have found that it is that its primary value is metaphorical, um, and then having come to that conclusion, I haven't bothered with it very much beyond that point. Um, I think a far more valuable navigational guidance to the mind system during physical dying process is to achieve uh, a, at least some degree of awakening. That that is going to provide far more valuable guidance in the process of dying than anything else that uh, uh, I can imagine. And uh, as I say, the assumptions behind much of what you find in the Bardo Todal uh, suggest to me strongly that it was always meant to be understood metaphorically. And that uh, the application of it in other contexts is perhaps consistent with the uh, cultural and political environment of Tibet uh, and useful, useful for those kinds of reasons. But I can't help but suspect that its origins uh, were not with that intention. But having said that, I don't know, and there's other people who will have very, very different opinions. So all I can do is offer my opinion based on my experience. I found it very interesting and in ways very useful, but not taking it as, uh, not taking it literally. Daniel Kuprishuk. By the way, is there anybody here that has a question that we're waiting to answer? Yeah, Katyana does. Okay. Uh, anybody else? And Bill Wallen does. Okay. Let me let me answer those questions then. Uh, well, as it turns out, uh, they're 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 the next two questions, and I can come back to Daniel's. Uh, Dr. Wallen, how would you compare and contrast guided meditation and hypnosis? 
What are the differences between expanding one's peripheral metacognitive awareness with the practice of choiceless awareness? Okay, so um, two different questions here. Um, there, I would, you know, on the spur of the moment, I would say that I really do recognize two distinct kinds of guided meditation. Um, one of which, which is the kind of guided meditations that you'll find that I do, are by no means uh, related to hypnosis. They are essentially pointing out that what they do require is perhaps a little bit of uh, the uh, of the same kind of mental shift that is takes place in hypnosis, because in to participate in a guided meditation, you have to allow the person who is guiding the meditation to essentially, um, well, to give them a large degree of the intentional control of your mind processes. But this is not to the point of suggestibility, because otherwise uh, that would make the kind of guided meditations that I do uh, put that in a category of creating uh, uh, or speaking to a kind of suggestibility that creates in the individual's mind a false experience rather than the experience that I'm attempting to help them to have on their own as a real experience. So there's a category of guided meditation that I see as the whole point of which is, here, let me take your mental hand and allow me to guide you step by step in such a way that you can have a particular kind of experience and it will, it will be real, it will be your experience and what's important about that is that, and, and the whole, my whole purpose in doing that kind of guided meditation is to facilitate your ability to achieve the same result on your own and without the guidance of my voice. So that's one category of guided meditation. Now there is another, there are many guided meditations that I have come across, uh, they're called guided meditations, um, and they involve a lot of suggestibility, um, imagination, their intentions are uh, of a large variety, uh, the simplest being relaxation and stress reduction um, through uh, a, a guided uh, uh, a, a guided meditation that perhaps uh, brings you to imagine yourself under very relaxing and peaceful circumstances and that, that, that suggestibility uh, take effect. 
Uh, others are, uh, they're of the nature of what I would call applied affirmation, where the guided meditation is attempting to bring you into a state of powerful suggestibility such that uh, certain kinds of mental effects or mind-body effects may be induced. Now, I think, for example, um, of, um, very interesting uh, healing meditations that I've heard where uh, essentially the, you know, they're uh, <coughs> Um, having you visualize your body, disease processes, healing energies, all manner of thing of that nature uh, as uh, actually producing physical transformations in your body. And I think I would put them, that's that category of guided meditation, I think does have a lot to do with hypnosis and engendering a hypnotic state. And I will add to that, that considering how much we've learned recently of the power of the mind-body uh, connection, that these, this particular kind of uh, uh, hypno-health-oriented guided meditation is probably something that is enormously valuable and much greater use could be uh, made of this. Uh, in, in medicine and in also probably in uh, 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 situations where uh, uh, assisting people to uh, hospice situations, assisting people in the preparation for their own death. So that, that's a category of guided meditation that I would consider to be uh, related to hypnosis and, and valuable in that. I mean, even a guided meditation that has you imagine that you're lying on a beach in the sun to help you relieve some of your mental and physical stress, I see that as beneficial and positive. A guided meditation in which you visualize uh, various energies or perhaps even your white blood cells uh, going and uh, uh, attacking uh, a tumor that uh, is spreading through your body. You know, I, I see those as being potentially valuable and I see those the ones that fall into the category of uh, hypnosis. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on, on that before I look at your second question. Uh, well, I, I think that there's... Uh there's a sort of a popular notion about what hypnosis is, mm -hmm. uh, which is not necessarily uh, equal to what it is, say, in a, in a medical setting. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I guess I'm referring to the style of hypnosis that was taught by uh, Milton Erickson, who is also from Arizona. Mm -hmm. um, and Milton Erickson basically did not try to uh, teach people or, or try to induce imaginary experiences in them. Mm -hmm. But uh, his process was using uh, a, a sort of a formula where you would 
give feedback to a person that what they were doing, you would uh, reflect back to the person whatever they're doing, two episodes, and then you'd give a, an indirect suggestion. An indirect suggestion would mean that you give, this is what they could do, mm-hmm. as opposed to telling them what they should do. And, and, and that the idea is that all hypnosis is really self-hypnosis. Yeah. Uh, so, and it's basically using whatever the person does to get into the trance or get into a, an altered mental state where thinking stops and he would sort of guide it as, or put it as being with how to be able to talk to the unconscious in a person without mm-hmm. getting the conscious in a way. So, I mean, this would be like talking about, say, people that had enuresis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he would do it by telling a story about how you can control throwing a baseball and how you use your muscles and it's just by sort of telling these stories that he would get people into this idea of they would experience a degree of self-control. What I meant by hypnosis in, in that is, is actually just getting to that state where mm-hmm. you can experience all these other things. Um, it's not really to denigrate guided meditations mm-hmm. or to think that they are, you know, just sort of shows. Mm-hmm. That was my... That's interesting. That's, that is... Uh, yeah, that's, a, uh, that's something that I hadn't been familiar with, that particular way of using uh, meditation. But I get it. I, I mean, not meditation, hypnosis, but I get it. And, um, yeah, I think that with both kinds of guided meditations that I was talking about there, uh, what, they're, what they do have in common is that um, there needs to be a certain surrender of the conscious, intentional control uh, to allow you know, in, in the one case, to allow the mind to follow the directions being given. In another case, to allow the mind to visualize possibilities that it may not have, uh, may not have considered or accepted. And here you're talking about uh, of, uh, of allowing the mind at an unconscious level through the same, you know, essentially the same mechanism, the suspension of the voluntary conscious control to allow the uh, hypnotist to speak directly to those unconscious mechanisms, which are in the case of enuresis, which would stand in the way of voluntary control. So I, I see there's a commonality there, and I think maybe that's what you're getting at, is that suspension of the in all these cases, in order for them to work, uh, there has to be a certain suspension of the need to be the agent in charge of the processes that are taking place in the mind. 
which is not to say that there's a total losing of consciousness necessarily, although I can see where that could be a part of it and seems to be in some stage hypnosis. In, in, in our experience, uh, we end up sort of surrendering to whatever the experience that comes to us yeah. as opposed to uh, trying to control the experience. Mm -hmm. I, I, I see meditation as being very much that, you know, yeah. whatever comes, we must accept and work with. Yes, that's true. And, yeah. and so it's, it's sort of like the nice thing about getting to that stage of getting into that stage where, um, where you can just accept things mm -hmm. and just see. Which oh, is, a, <laughs> that's a huge part of what meditation is about. It, it's about surrender. It's about acceptance. It's about letting go. Uh, so much of it is. And, uh, gee, I have to thank you for bringing this up because it's set in motion in my mind. Uh, yes, this, this is, a, I, I feel like I'd love to learn more about hypnosis and its relationship to one of the most major things that a person needs to do in the process of uh, uh, meditation. You know, right? We talk about that right from second stage is you have to realize you're not in control of your mind. You know, let go of that. Let, let the meditation happen. Yeah. As, a, as a physician, I often told patients uh, the prayer of surrender. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, yes. God, give me the grace to accept the things I cannot change, the wisdom to change the things I can. Or sorry, the grace, the, the courage yes. to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. Yes, and exactly. I added the addendum to it that about the only thing we ever have control of, or we can potentially have control of, how we react to our external circumstances mm -hmm. and how we react to our internal circumstances. Very profoundly true. Yes. Otherwise, everything else is is a, is a random duck shoot. That's right. Yes, I agree. Well, very well put. So thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes, I I think in terms of the. The innate capabilities of our mind that uh, could be understood and uh, utilized more than they are. Uh, I realize that now hypnosis is very much, it is as much one of those as is the flow state. And indeed, there's certain similarities, although one is a surrendering, completely internal surrendering whereas the other can have an external component to it. So, yeah. Milton Erickson and, and many of those people, though, always maintain that hypnosis is always self-hypnosis. In fact, yes. you can never make somebody else do something they don't yeah. want to do. Yes. So it's, it's, it's always this sort of coming... Mm -hmm. it, it, it's a surrender. It, it, I mm -hmm. can see how the guided meditations in some ways are almost like um, 
or similar to like visualizations where you visualize uh, oneself in the future as being an arhunt or you visualize, you know, succeeding at this task or that task mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. do that. That to me is sort of almost similar to the guided meditation that you were talking about where you uh, image, imagine yourself fighting off an illness. Yes, right. Yes, I would agree. Those kinds of visualizations are very much in that, in that particular category, yes. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Well, that, that, that's really good. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad we got to uh, your question this time. Let's have a look at the second part of your question, okay? Um. Sure, that's it. May I just add something about that discussion? Yes, please. So there's a type of hypnosis called depth hypnosis, which is very interesting. And it's coming through energy healers and shamanism and stuff like that. And you sink into these, uh, I call it sinking, but... Um, into these non-dual states, which I think, you know, ultimately is what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. and, and how, whatever process, whether it's, I mean, it's all meditative in the sense because it's introspective, it's focus, mm -hmm. concentration. And then through accessing these, uh, that non-dual state, which of course, um, because of its very nature is something that is um, inexpressible, indescribable, but is like a, we, our discussions on emptiness previously is the foundation of everything from which everything can arise itself. So it's the source of all healing in a sense um, at the highest level and um, that we have this great opportunity to access it through these types of processes. So mm -hmm. I think there's um, a, a definitely a, a, a mushrooming interest to make a joke, but <laughs> <laughs> in this whole uh, this this space of non-duality uh, and what you were alluding to um, however and also dr wallen as well with respect to um, where healing can be occurring on a very high level on the energetic mm -hmm. level which uh, mm -hmm. so just want to share that with you yes thank you thank the, you the only other thing i would like to add with regard to uh the ericksonian approach towards hypnosis is and, and this is another thing that I really ended up using with all of my patients is, is that you only give suggestions that are indirect. So, mm -hmm. in other words, uh, you never use should, ought, need, must verbs. It's always may. You could try. You give them multiple choices, but so it's always coming from internally. In mm -hmm. uh, that way. Uh, there is, you lose the resistance yes. of, of telling somebody what they should do. Yes. And, and it's always much more successful by just giving them, uh, if this is what you want, you could try this, uh, or you could try this or that. So mm -hmm. you give choices and just let people choose. That's interesting. Um, uh I think the next time I do a guided meditation with a group, I'll see if I can't rephrase things so that uh, there's less. The, it's less the case that I'm giving them the instructions rather than I'm suggesting. And uh, especially, I like that if you would. Uh, the implication is 
if you would like this, then maybe you would like to try that. Right. And, and in patients, they oftentimes come with a certain problem. So mm -hmm. you if you find out what their motivation is, then you can, you know, give suggestions around that, that you know can help. But again, it's their choice. Yes, that's right. Yes, excellent. So. There's an interesting, uh, it, it occurs to me in, in what you've just said, you're finding a balance between uh, surrender and it's their choice. So uh, not so much that you're encouraging them to that sense of uh, being the agent, but rather you're, you're bypassing any kind of resistance that might be generated by suggesting that you're not the agent. Right, and, and letting their own agent arise within themselves. Right. Very, very interesting. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Again. Okay, well, the other part of your question here is what are the differences between expanding one's peripheral metacognitive awareness with the practice of choiceless awareness? This is an interesting question because what it, what it touches upon, for me at least, is the implicit realization that, uh, that attention and awareness in the sense that I use them uh, are actually two different things, but um, the, uh, the absence of any explicit recognition of that because uh, the practices that, uh, 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 that, that I am familiar with, that I've experienced that are called choiceless awareness are essentially choiceless attention. But because we know that nothing can arise in attention until it has appeared in awareness, what we're doing with choiceless awareness is we are encouraging the development, the expansion of one's awareness uh, in order that uh, attention uh, may move through a larger, uh, perhaps more complex and more interesting field of uh, awareness. And there is nothing more complex and interesting uh, than uh, the uh, states and activities of one's own mind. So uh, I do see this practice that's known as choiceless awareness as, as a way of expanding one's awareness by uh, allowing, uh, allowing attention to uh, move freely. And as a matter of fact, uh, I have uh, incorporated that uh, uh, particular practice uh, in, into stage eight, and uh, uh, it does have a it does have a considerable uh, uh, potential for uh, triggering insight. Um, 
Uh, and just along similar lines, if we look at the Mahasi noting practice, it's very much the same thing. To recognize something that you can redirect your attention to and either label, note, or notice, depending on what stage of that practice that you're in, um, when you're doing this consistently over time, it very much encourages the development of awareness. Uh, extrospective awareness becomes uh, exhausted of interest fairly quickly, and uh, that fascinating domain of introspective and particularly metacognitive introspective awareness begins to spontaneously strengthen so that, uh, so that there is something that draws the attention that can be labeled or noted and so forth. So uh, I, I find, uh, uh, you say, what are the differences between expanding one's peripheral metacognitive awareness with the practice of choiceless awareness? And I get add to that the practice and noting practice. The difference is that one knows what one is doing, and it's not um, trying to discover the implicit nature of something that to which you are explicitly blind. That knowing this allows it to take place much more powerfully, effectively, and consistently. And um, just in my experience, um, having started out with the Mahasi noting practice, having never done a lot of time with choiceless awareness, so it's hard for me to make a comparison, but with the explicit acknowledgement of the distinction between awareness and attention, and then the introduction of the idea of a metacognitive uh, uh, aspect to introspective awareness, we find that meditators, by the time they reach the level of, which, uh, of stage four, they are able to very quickly and very effectively develop uh, a powerful uh, metacognitive introspective awareness because it is explicit. Whereas this process takes much, much longer and often requires an uh, intense uh, uh, retreat setting, prolonged retreat setting to occur when it is only there implicitly but not explicitly. So that would say that would be the difference. But uh, the similarities are, uh, uh, to understand the difference, we have to understand the similarities first. That... Uh, there's three different approaches to developing what the Buddha referred to as sati, ultimately sati sampajana, and which is a necessary, uh, which is, I, I think we could almost get away with saying, the essential mental faculty for uh, the successful arising of insight. And so the difference, which I think has really made a difference, uh, and probably has a lot to do with the popularity of uh, the mind illuminated, is that it makes uh, something which is otherwise implicitly known, but
but must be uh, developed over a much longer and tedious period of time, by making it explicit, it allows the person to develop it much more quickly uh, and use it in a whole variety of ways, which of course further accelerates the development of that particular mental skill. So that would be my answer to your second question. I agree that the mind illuminated really makes explicitly uh, how to work with and develop the skills that are needed to open up and and really grow peripheral awareness. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've sort of had a feeling that in some sense, our ability to translate the lessons that we learn from sitting mm-hmm. uh, into everyday life are to large to large part, I think, from the development of of uh, always having peripheral awareness. Yes. Large, so you can always catch yourself, or you can catch these processes yes. coming up before you get tied to the reaction to them or you can see your reaction to them quickly and, and be able to analytically think about, Oh yeah, that's, I got yes. caught there. Yes. I don't, I, what are your thoughts on that? Yes. I, I, I agree. You described it well. Yes. You know what we, if you, if you have a cognitive framework in which to, observe what is actually happening, then you can see so much more than you can if you don't, you know, it's, and that's what identifying these explicitly does is it provides a cognitive framework. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I really, uh, I really appreciated your questions and your discussion. So thank you. And the little gift you gave to me of wanting to explore hypnosis and perhaps use some of the principles you described in the future. So. Well, I can certainly send you some references, at least to Milton Erickson. Uh, well, if there's something uh, that's particularly concise, uh, so I, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I would love it. It's something that something that sort of hits the main points of what you think is the most important things that he has to offer that doesn't take a long time to read. I would feel very blessed by that. So I will search. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, um, Katiana. Yes. So. Yes. Hi. Hi there. Hi. Yes. I'm reading Bob Thurman's amazing translation of Tsongkhapa, one of the greatest Tibetan sages devoted to Manjushri, or holy wisdom treasure. As I was reading about Nagarjuna's wisdom and about shunyata, or emptiness, it was a blinding revelation that once the full logical import of the middle or central way is understood, it enables the bodhisattva to immediately reconcile the ultimate polarity of existence and non-existence, samsara and nirvana. Both are extremes, but equally valid. Thus wisdom, shunyata, is the invincible diamond chariot that carries the cosmic healing force 
of compassion to function eternally in this as a bodhisattva compassion thus enables all bodhisattvas to accept this ultimate paradox and koan and not be overwhelmed by the immensity of samsara uh, at any level of being. It was a blinding and exhilarating insight. Uh, what say you, dear teacher? Well, <laughs> congratulations. That's what, I, that's, that's what I have to say to you. <laughs> Very much congratulations. I speak of this usually as the, um, um, the realization of the non-duality of being and non-being which is uh, the, um, which is in fact the, um, the deepest, um, most profound, profound realization of uh, what is meant by emptiness, what is, uh, what is referred to by that, is the, uh, it's the, it's the realization of the nature of suchness. Um, and as a, uh, um, a, as a uh, dedicated uh, rangtong, or no, uh, sorry, shentong, rather than rangtong, interpreter of the meaning of emptiness and the nature of emptiness, it is the self-nature of emptiness that we're speaking of here. The yes, it's, it's wonderful that you have experienced that. Well, um, you uh, addressed a lot of the uh, issues or questions or um, um, insights last time, um, but uh, and thank you again. Um, but I also realized after this particular uh, description that I posted last time as a question that that's why it's also called the perfection of wisdom. Because yes. it's such an, it's so, it is so perfect. I mean, it's like so incredible that it fits together. And it's like the deconstruction of the Mahayana chariot to create and understand, to have that wisdom. So I just thought, you know, with all the glorious teaching and your, your book and everything, which in a very powerful way brings us to this point as well through all the yes. stages and that's what i love about your teachings and your books and every question that whether whatever the question is the answers are always guiding us so beautifully so yes. thank you and uh, thank you for answering the question as well i just had one comment to make about the um, mm -hmm. ardo process and um, when i read the um, I, I started in tibetan tradition and when i first read the um, Tibetan book of uh, living and dying and that period the bardo um, it's such an integral period as a transitional period between this consciousness and passing into whatever portal we call yes. death for uh, from the Tibetan perspective um, so in at the deepest level to me it's also about finally letting go because it's those attachments whether you see flashing lights or whether you yes. have or you have something that you wanted to do in your life. It's actually in that process of finally letting go. I don't know if you had a similar, for me, this is what I understood. And the Buddha's teaching as well, in terms of the letting go of the, all the propensity, all the verbal conceptual proliferation to see reality as it is. So 
just yes. three few points were what came up for me um, as you yes. were talking today. Yes, and I, I, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I hesitated to go into any kind of detail about the uh, uh, tremendous metaphorical value that I find in that. The metaphor is really, uh, I, I'll just go ahead and state it rather briefly. The metaphor that it is, it is addressing is that of completely dropping the last shreds of ignorance that, uh, uh, that have kept us bound to delusion and allowing us to see things as they are which is where the Buddha was trying to guide us all the way along. And so it is the, uh, the bardos in that description is really another way of describing the transition of, from seeing and experiencing uh, one's own mind and body and the world one's in from the perspective of delusion and shifting instead into seeing it from the perspective of wisdom and insight. And, the, uh, and so the bardos, that's the transition that the bardos are really talking about from, from ignorance to wisdom. Yeah. And to mistake that as being talking about something is happening between one physical incarnation and another incarnation is to lead people not to appreciate and understand the true depth of what's being described there. Thank you. And um, one final point. You've mentioned today about um, presence and flow. And I think those are such important parts and from my, um, uh, the insights that I gained of those processes through my meditation practice were some of the most powerful because there is something totally different about that. And you again came to that when you were talking about the experience of PT, that there's something completely different about that state. It's like no longer space and time continuum is not existing. There's something beyond anything that we typically experience. And yet there it is. And I, wanted, I, I wondered if you would comment on that in relationship to what um, Dogen called, you know, the becoming, Uji. Mm -hmm. It's, yes. uh, you know, because to me that's a very much a part of the foundation also at the heart of the Mahayana, yeah. is that there is no present, that there is always a becoming. So, yes, that's right. The presence as, presence as a static state of being would actually be uh, completely contradictory to so much else of, of the Dhamma. The present moment contains within it the entirety of the past and the uh, totality, the total potentiality for anything that might be. And so it, yes, it, it is not a static point on a moving line at all. But very difficult concepts to try to express until one has had certain experiences, in which case it's, ah, it is the eternally creative moment.
Deathless eternity. I mean, yes. like, yeah. yeah. So eternitas means outside of time. It's the, it's the timeless moment of creation, of becoming. The, yes. Okay. So thank you for that comment as well. So, um, yes, yeah, it's been a great discussion. As you might hear from my voice, I'm a bit hoarse. I have, uh, I, I think I have a little bit of uh, bronchitis. And uh, the one question I didn't answer was Daniel's about my, uh, my health. Um, and uh, I can give you a brief health update. Uh, not, not much new. The, uh, the drug that I'm taking for the lung cancer is uh, still working, as far as I know. In March, I'll have another CT scan, and hopefully it says the same thing that the previous ones have, that uh, the metastases in my lung are either shrinking or stable, and there's no new metastases in other parts of my body. Um, most of my other health problems are secondary to uh, the other things that I've been through uh, uh, because of uh, many years of chronic Lyme disease. I do still have uh, some immune system impairment, which of course is not the best thing to have when your body is trying to deal with cancer. Uh, my respiratory problems are a result of having uh, uh, a combination of uh, uh, one of the largest lobes in my lung, the upper right lobe of my lung removed. Uh, those are largely uh, uh, overcome. Uh, I've recovered a lot of, uh, uh, of my uh, pulmonary function. Of course, I'll never recover it completely. Uh, I've discovered that I have a, a bronchiotracheal atelectasis that was probably congenital, but the lobectomy somehow uh, uh, aggravated it, and it is responsible for the fact that under some conditions, I find it very difficult to breathe because each time I try to exhale, the airways collapse on me. So, um, But other than that, I'm feeling good. My energy levels are good. I'm having a lot to deal with right now. And I'm just hoping that the stress of the things that I have to deal with, having to do with uh, a retreat center and trying to, uh, to get it on a solid footing. Uh, we, we're looking for a new person to manage it. Uh, uh, and the fact that the person we had did not work out and that we need to find somebody else and train them is responsible for a lot of the stress that I'm under. And uh, the sooner that that stress disappears, then the sooner I think my immune system will start responding better to the treatment I'm getting. So if you might send, send your good wishes, and if you know somebody who's a, who would be a fantastic retreat center manager, then just, you just let me know, okay? <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to bank on that, but just in case, you know, you never heard, you throw things out to the universe and you never can tell what you get back. So, 
anyway. So thank you all very much. And we had another good session. We're going to have another one in a couple of weeks. So this one will be all new questions. And I look forward to seeing you there and then. Thank you. Thanks, Chuladasa.